there are 30% of Navajos on the Navajo Nation who don't have that luxury of turning on the tap and who don't have that luxury of having access even to safe water, whether that comes through a sink in their house or if they're hauling water from a source. You know, everybody needs water to survive. And it's a big issue, especially during COVID, because, you know, we're told constantly that you need to wash your hands and stay at home. But when you don't have running water, that's not a possibility. The challenge in the Western US is that, um, of course, all of this forest management and the problems with the ways that we have managed forests and suppressed fire for a century, um, that is contributing to wildfire, increasing wildfire risk and sort of larger, um, more destructive wildfires. But then there's also climate change, right? And and of course, the science is very clear that climate change is amplifying all those things. It is what we call the threat multiplier. Environmental racism typically happens, of course, in indigenous communities that are on reserves. It has happened in African Nova Scotian communities that, in, that are in isolated, out-of-the-way places. I think there's something to that. I think it's much easier to put a landfill in a community that is out of the way because you think that they're not going to make a big fuss about it. If it were in a white elite community in downtown Halifax, of course, it's gonna be pressed. They're gonna make a big deal about it. So I think this happens because of racism. What it essentially says is that one in three people on the planet today, one in three people on the planet in 2070, nine billion people population, will have to make a difficult decision about whether they either persevere and continue to live outside of that habitability niche in a place that for 6,000 years hasn't really supported human life very well, or move. And for sure, 3 billion people won't choose to migrate in response to climate. But that's how many people will probably have to make a decision about whether or not to move in some smaller fraction, a very, very large number will. Hundreds of regulations have been eliminated or delayed or rolled back under the Trump administration. And there's an opportunity to put some of those back in place to accelerate new regulations on contaminants that have been delayed for now four years or longer to pay more attention to the fact that there's still very large communities in the United States that don't have access to safe water and sanitation, something that's been ignored, again, for way too long, to restore protections for the waters of the United States. Winters are warming faster than any other season in Canada. So, you know, when you talk about ice rinks, whether indoor or outdoor, when you talk about snow, that's why we're seeing these consequences so meaningfully because the winter is where we're experiencing it the most. And, and what, a, what an effect it's going to have on Canadian culture, on our hockey culture, on our, on our winter heritage. It's kind of sad to think about it. So the amount of plastic we used to produce in 1950 when we started was about a half a million tons per year. Today it's nearly or just over 400 million tons per year. Almost half of that is used to make single-use plastic products, which are used once and then often thrown away. And these are the materials that are sometimes getting into the environment. So I think we let this happen slowly over time. We didn't think or see the large negative consequence that might ensue, and change is hard. Right now, one of our big reasons for boiled water advice is are the cisterns, because our cisterns can't be, um, they're not really proven to work very well because we still have feces that are still getting into those, cracking and that's going on with those. Some of the things that they discover when they go do cistern cleaning, animal parts in there, you don't want to be drinking that water. So in our area here, we have boiled water advisories on anybody that's on those systems. 
You asked about the negative examples of water markets. Well, the New York Times article, I think, did a good job of pointing to Enron, right? I mean, if you have uh, any commodity, whether it's energy or water or pork bellies or whatever, and an entity essentially fabricates a artificial market that doesn't really exist, and people invest in that, and then the whole house of cards crumbles in on itself, that's a negative example of having markets in this space that nobody would like. Uh, not me, not, not anybody uh, wants to see that happen. You have one of the toughest policy problems ever. And the reason is you're talking about groundwater, something not seen, not understood, that is in crisis, that is depleting, where the people living above this unseen groundwater depend on the water for their livelihoods, for their food, for their survival. Even when the problem is above ground, even when it is smack in your face, we are just bad at even handling the things we see much less the things we don't see.